Well, we're undertaking a study of the book of Revelation, the only book of the Bible that has the audacity to pronounce a special blessing for the one that reads or hears this particular book. No other book of the Bible makes that claim. And so it's an exciting study. The book of Revelation is one of the few, the only book of the Bible that I know of that has a divinely inspired outline for its organization. Verse 19 of chapter 1, the Lord gives John the outline of the book. Whenever we study a book, we, of course, try to outline it, but in this case, we have the Holy Spirit outlining it for us. Jesus says to John, Write the things which thou hast seen, which is chapter 1, the vision that has just been completed. Write the things which are, and that's chapters 2 and 3, we'll discover, and the things which shall be metatauta, or after these things. That's from chapter 4 onwards. Of these three sections, they're obviously not of equal size, Chapter 1 is a vision which also introduces a number of code words or labels or indicators to identities, if you will, of Jesus Christ that are used throughout the book then. The second section, chapters 2 and 3, is, are the two chapters which I believe will prove to be the most fruitful for us personally. There's much in the book that's interesting and exciting, but the chapters 2 and 3 are the two chapters that are most directly applicable to you and I. And so it's a a very, very special section. Now, Jesus wrote seven epistles, or dictated them anyway, and John penned them. Seven epistles. We often say there's 28 epistles in the New Testament. Well, there's 21 epistles in the New Testament. 14 by Paul, if you include Romans, and seven so-called general epistles. Everyone ignores the seven that have none other than the Lord Jesus Christ as the author, and directly, directly the author. And one of the things that you want to have in your mind as we study these seven churches is why these seven? If you make a list of prominent churches, relevant churches, important churches in the period, you obviously come to Antioch, Jerusalem, Rome, many other churches. And yet these seven are the ones the Lord Jesus picked. And one of this, by way of review, we discover that these seven letters to seven churches have at least four levels of meaning. The first is a local level. There were literal churches with real problems, and thanks to Sir William Ramsey, who excavated these churches archaeologically, we know a lot about them. So the first level of understanding is a literal, local, immediate level, which I'll call, for lack of a better label, I'll call it the local level. Each letter has an admonition by the Holy Spirit. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church says, plural. Each of the seven letters was sent to each church, along with the rest of the book of Revelation. So while each letter is addressed to a specific church, the lessons, the admonitions, the insights of each letter apply to each church. And so uh, there's an admonitory aspect. Each of these letters involve lessons that we can all learn uh, whatever church we are involved in. The third level of meaning is a little similar and yet a little different. The Holy Spirit says in each letter, He that hath an ear. And I uh, made a quick inspection before we started. I think that includes everyone here, right? How many of you have an earlobe? Can I see your hands? Okay, that's. Then that letter is applied, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So each letter has also a personal application. We'll call that homiletic, if you will. A local, an admonitory to all churches, and a homiletic or application to us personally. There's also a fourth level of meaning that's more speculative, more controversial, and yet we'll lay it out and you can draw your own conclusions. It appears 
that these letters mysteriously, mystically, lay out all of church history. It's interesting that the book of Acts covers a little more than 30 years, and yet the church period is, is involved the better part of 1900. It would not surprise us for the Holy Spirit to give us a guide, an overview, a perception of this critical period of, of history. And it would seem that these seven letters of seven churches lay out the history of the Christian church from its first century beginnings all the way to the very end. It's interesting, and we'll, we'll study this as we go, but one of the observations you'll discover is that if these letters were in any other order, it would not be true. It's interesting that we'll discover many, many clues, many, many reasons why scholars hold this view. It's a very widely held view, not universal. A lot of people have slightly different views, and that's fine. I candidly uh, uh, share this view, that these seven letters lay out a prophetic profile. In fact, some of the manifestations of this are so obvious that I think you'll quickly see them. What's interesting to me is even as you get into subtle aspects of the text itself, it just seems to confirm that. That's one reason we'll spend a little bit of time discussing the design structure of these particular letters. Now, last time we took the letter to Ephesus, we discover that even the name of the church turns out to be relevant to its central message. Each of these seven letters has a specific theme, a specific emphasis. And we discover that every detail in the letter supports that theme. The title that Jesus chooses of himself as the sender is different in each letter and, and, and chosen with the eye towards the central message of the letter. It turns out even the name of the church turns out to be relevant. By way of review, the letter to Ephesus, the main problem, the Ephesians did a marvelous job at keeping heresy out of the church. They kept their doctrines pure. And yet it came at a cost, a lack of love. The Ephesian church is known in the Ephesian letter as the one that had lost its first love. And we talked about that last time. And of course, the word Ephesus turns out to mean darling or a spousal love, if you will. So now that brings us to the church at Smyrna. And what we'll do to begin with is let's just read. We'll first of all just quickly read the letter. I'll give you a little background on Smyrna, and then we'll go through it expositionally in more detail. Starting at verse 8 of chapter 2. These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried. And ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Well, the first thing you notice, if you just skim the letter superficially, is it's got death written all over it. Suffering and death, death, death. Even Jesus, uh, I am the first and last, which was dead and is alive, and so forth. And, and he tells the church at Smyrna that they will suffer and uh, to the death. The word Smyrna means myrrh. Myrrh was a spice or an ointment or a, a, a perfume that gave its fragrance by being crushed. Its principal use was for embalming. 
So even the name Smyrna begins to suggest mystically the theme of the letter. But first of all, let's talk about Smyrna literally. Today it's known as Izmir. It's the third largest city in Turkey. It uh, has a population of about uh, about 300,000. In the New Testament period, it was probably about 100,000. It exports tobacco, grapes, figs, cotton, olives, and oil. It has an excellent harbor. It's encircled by cypress-clad hills. It has a history that goes back to 3000 B.C. And I'll, I'll, there'll be in the notes that accompany the tape will give you some background. I'll spare you 2,500 years of history, only to mention a couple of things that uh, during this period, Homer, the poet, born, lived, and died in Smyrna. Three centuries of greatness, however, ended with the attack of the Lydians. There was a lot of history I'll skip over. But in the 4th century B.C., Alexander the Great, in response to a dream he had, ordered one of his generals, Lysimachus, uh, to build a strong, well-planned city. It was indeed the most beautiful in Ionia. It became known as the Flower of Ionia. It prospered into one of the greatest of the then-known world. It came under the control of the Romans in 27 B.C., just before the New Testament period. It, having proved itself to be a very faithful ally of Rome in the Syrian and Mithraic uh, wars. So uh, from 27 B.C. to 324 A.D., it enjoyed enormous material prosperity. Strabo described it as the most beautiful city in the world. It's about 42 miles uh, north of Ephesus. It was favored with a double harbor. It had a large harbor, an outer harbor that had a deep mooring ground, that had an inner harbor that you could actually chain under times of, of concern. It had a lot of ups and downs. In the reign of Tiberius, it almost got wiped out by an earthquake. It suffered a succession of seismic disturbances, which uh, again and again ruined it. Marcus Aurelius once more restored it. Um, and again, in 378, there's another earthquake that demolished the city. But again, the intrepid Smyrnians rebuilt it. It has had a very upbeat history since. Smyrna was richly embellished with temples and uh, splendid buildings. It had symmetry of temples around a Mount, Mount Pagos there which gave it, the, it was, the, the temples were called the crown of Smyrna. That's going to become important to us a little later. At the foot of the mountain stood the temple of Zeus, who was considered the father of the gods, reputed to be the lord of the sky, rain, clouds, and thunder. And on the golden street there stood shrines of Apollo, the sun god, Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty, and Escalapius, the god of medicine, and finally close to the sea, Sibylle, the Phrygian god, a nature goddess. And there's a bunch of others I'll spare you. In addition to the usual deities... Smyrna also readily accepted Caesar worship. In 196 B.C., the Smyrnians erected a temple to Dea Roma, the goddess of Rome, and they subsequently built one to Tiberius. The worship of the emperor was compulsory. Each year, a Roman citizen had to burn a pinch of incense on the altar and to acknowledge publicly that Caesar was supreme lord. In return, he received a formal certificate that he had done so. Originally, the action was intended just to demonstrate political loyalty. Uh, and, uh, and the individual, because the individual was then allowed to worship any god he wanted to, uh, after having made that acknowledgement. So this was a means by which the Roman Empire tried to unify its diverse and varied elements in its, in its vast empire. And uh, however, this act of worship was a severe test for the Christians, because the Christians refused to do this and thus were subject to persecution, in many cases death. We'll talk more about that as this develops. In fact, on Saturday, February 23rd of 155 A.D., the bishop of Smyrna, a guy by the name of Polycarp, refused to recant. 
And uh, even the administrators were anxious that he would because he was a very beloved guy. However, he said, uh, 80 and 6 years have I served him, meaning Jesus Christ, and he never did me wrong. How can I speak now evil of my king who has saved me? And the old man was burned at the stake on the Sabbath day, an object of Jewish hatred as well as Roman persecution. You'll discover that in those early years, it's the Jews, the Jewish leadership, that's promoting uh, much of the, the problems that they were uh, facing. And uh, we'll come to some of that too. But let's, let's jump into the exposition of the text. And the text opens up verse 8. Unto the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. And here we have the, word, the concept of death introduced right even in the title of Jesus Christ. And I indicated myrrh is a bitter gum and costly perfume, which exudes from certain trees in Arabia and Ethiopia. And it's, an, it's obtained by making incisions in the bark, and it's used as an antiseptic and, as, and for embalming. In Psalm 45, we have it as an ingredient perfume. It's also prominent in the Song of Solomon and so forth. It was an ingredient in the, whole, in the anointing oil for the priests, also in Exodus 30. Uh, it was a gift, you may recall, of course, that was a gift of the Magi at the birth of Christ in Matthew 2. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold speaking of royalty, frankincense of his priesthood, and myrrh of his suffering and death. And those of you that are diligent in your Bible studies may recall that in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6, we learn that in the millennium he will again be given gifts, but not myrrh. Gold and frankincense will be presented to our Lord, but not myrrh. Why? Because his death will have been behind him by then. He was offered to the cross, but refused in Mark 15. And, of course, Joseph and Nicodemus used myrrh to embalm him in John 19. And as I indicated, it's very graphic because myrrh yields its fragrance by being crushed. Even at the very outset, the name of the church and the Lord's selection of the title of himself, selected from those titles from chapter 1, we find that this concept of death is is uh, overlays the letter. And yet Jesus, of course, points out that he was dead and is alive. So it's the promise of the resurrection that motivates and, and holds the Smyrnians. So in verse, from verses 9 and, and the first part of verse 10 are what would be organized as the commendation. Jesus Christ here in each letter says, I know your works, and gives them, here's the good news. He's giving them the report card, what's good and what's bad. In this case, what's good. He says, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them that say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Incidentally, if you list these uh, without counting, how many commendations do they get? Seven. Good guess. I know thy works in tribulation. The actual word is thalipsis. It's actually pressure or affliction. The word means oppressing, oppressing together, or pressure. It's oppression, affliction, distress, or straits. Don't jump to the conclusion that what he's referring to here is the Great Tribulation. That can be a subject of a lot of confusion. They are, he, know, he knows their works, their tribulation, small t, if you will, their poverty. Now, they, it's interesting how each church has a misconception of themselves. One of the reasons we study these letters, one of the lessons we learn is that churches generally don't know their own condition. Each of the churches here seem to have a misconception of their condition. In this case, they think they're poor. But Jesus says in parentheses, but thou art rich. See, they have riches they didn't realize. The word um, for uh, poverty, by the way, is uh, there are two words for poverty in the Greek. Penya, which means it's a state of having nothing extra. And uh, 
paterkia, which is uh, which is what's used here. It's a state of someone who has nothing at all. In other words, absolute beggary. That's the term that's used here in this thing, in this uh, in this phrase. And Jesus says, "I know your suffering." How exciting that is when we're going through a trial. How easy we forget. I want to ask, how many of you have been going through trials? Huh? I wasn't going to ask. Yeah, I figured I get good. Okay, most of you. The good news is Jesus knows that suffering. Jesus knows that suffering. John 16:33, 2 Timothy 3:12 are places you might. You know, it's interesting. In their case, their suffering could have been revealed by offering a pinch of incense on an altar for what was a trivial political act. And they would have been off the hook. But they refused to do it. I know thy works. And tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. I know the blasphemy of them who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Wow. The blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not. And this opens a whole study of the blasphemy of the, of the Jews in general, but a particular group that was afflicted then, and let, then we'll try to apply it to ourselves. And this is also a good excuse for me to pop into John chapter 8. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that I hope we gain by getting into the Word deeply is to set aside these notions of what I like to call the Sunday school Jesus. So many of us form our impressions from the comfortable little coloring books for the primary grades, and we tend to visualize Jesus as the suntan carpenter who walks along the shore of Galilee, patting the kids on the head, telling everyone to turn the other cheek. When we read the gospel writings, unless we're watching closely, we don't appreciate the tensions involved. And what I'm going to suggest you do do at your leisure is to read John chapter 8 and this dialogue if I can call it that, that goes on before Jesus and the uh, Pharisees. I won't take the whole thing, but just to pick it up, verse 17 18, Jesus says, It is written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bears witness of myself, and the, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. When you get to verse 19, most people don't realize what they're saying. Then said they unto him, Where is thy Father? Now, see, when we read that, we think they're asking an interrogatory question. No, they're making an allusion to his apparent illegitimate birth. They're calling him a bastard. And before he's through, he's going to explain a little bit more about their parentage. <laughs> Jesus answered and said, You neither know me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And then he goes on. Verse 39, they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said unto him, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth. Have I, which I have heard of God, this did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. And they said unto him, We are not born of fornication. See, there again, you get, you get the tension? We have but one Father, even God. Jesus said to him, If God were your Father, you would love me. But I, for I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do ye not understand my speech, even because ye cannot hear my word? Ye are of your Father, guess who? The devil. He's speaking to the 
leadership. He's speaking to Pharisees. He's speaking to the professionals. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And he goes on. He finally uh, gets to verse 56. It says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews said unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, how hast thou seen Abraham? And Jesus said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. He's making the Ichyach Asher Ichyach statement, the Ego Aimi statement, the I am that I am statement. He is claiming to be the voice of the burning bush. You and I, as Gentiles, might miss that. The Pharisees didn't. Notice what they do in verse 59. They took up stones to cast at him. See, to them that was blasphemy. Whenever a Gentile runs the risk of misunderstanding the passage, the Pharisees come to our rescue by underscoring it for us. (laughs) Jesus knew what blasphemy was. Jesus knew what suffering was. And he says here, I know the blasphemy of them who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Who could he be talking about? Well, for one thing, you should remember that even the Jewish believers, the Jewish Christians, argued that a convert had to be circumcised. Remember the big dispute that occurs. Paul and Peter finally end up going to uh, the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15, all over. You want to read Acts 15? You remember, that was a big bruja. Because it's understandable, in the Old Testament period, if you wanted to come to the Lord, you proselyted into Judaism. So now even the Jews that were Christians presumed, understandably, that a believer would have to do the same thing, become a Jew and then a Christian. And that's what uh, Peter and Paul deal with in Acts 15, and James, the leader of the council, quotes Amos 9 elsewhere and elsewhere to, uh, to deal with that. But by the way, I'm going to commend to you a detailed study of Acts 15, and when you do, I want you to notice there are two questions that are there. The first question that everybody understands is quite obvious. The question is, does a Gentile have to become a Jew to be saved? And they deal with that. But you'll also notice when you read James' response that he's dealing with the second question, which is implied. You see, the second question that's implied is if a Gentile does not have to become a Jew, what's to become of Israel? That's understandable. They had this thousands of years of heritage, and if that's out, is that out the window? And if so, what's to become of Israel? Let's pop over to Acts 15. And again, one of the difficulties in our study is to try not to go down too many of these by roads, but I'd like to do enough. And the arguments that lead up to this are dramatic. It's hard for me to pass them, but I guess I need to. But James answered, chapter 15, verse 13, after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God first did visit the nations to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, for as it is written, after this I will return. And we'll build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And we'll build again its ruins. And I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord. And all the nations upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the age. And so on. After this I will return. After what? 
when the church is complete, when, the, out of the, when a people has been called out of the Gentiles, after this I will return and build again the tabernacle of David. One of the most tragic heresies that pervades the Christian church is a view that Israel is over. You'll find many denominations, this all goes back actually to, to early heresies in the church, and we'll talk about that as we go. But very early in the church, the church became very anti-Semitic. And that was tragic for the Jews, of course, but it was also tragic for the church. It was tragic for the Jews because in 19 centuries there's been all kinds of atrocities perpetrated under the, under the banner of Christ. And we'll talk more about that later in the book. But it was also tragic for the church because we lost our Jewish roots. Much of the scripture, New Testament scripture, we don't understand because we haven't done our Old Testament homework. There is a view that because the Jews rejected their Messiah, they forfeited the promises that God had made to them. Now that view happens to be unscriptural because the promises that we're talking about were given to Abraham unconditionally, unconditionally. And uh, particularly the promises of the land. All through the Old Testament, there are promises that the Messiah would rule the planet Earth from Jerusalem. In fact, they're so vivid, that's one of the reasons that during the days of Christ, many of the leadership were confused. In fact, even John the Baptist, when he was in prison, began to lose perspective because he also expected things to happen that were not timed yet, that were to be yet future. And that's not only in the Old Testament, it's the New Testament. Gabriel, when he announced Jesus to Mary, promised Mary that he would sit on David's throne. David's throne did not exist during those days. One of the great... Uh, heresies that, that caused the Holocaust in Europe, caused the Christian church to stand by and let it happen, was this root heresy that God is through with Israel. And God makes it very clear in the Old Testament that they are set aside for a time, but they have a destiny prophetically. In fact, most people confuse Revelation chapter 6 through the 19 because they fail to perceive its Jewishness. Throughout the... Uh, the New Testament, Paul says there are three. There's Jews and Gentile in the church. And he constantly emphasizes the lack of distinction between Jew and Gentile as far as the church is concerned. And yet in the book of Revelation, from chapter 7 onwards, we see a re-emphasis of Israel suddenly. And in many, many ways, the book of Revelation uh, is structured like an Old Testament book. In fact, the Greek in the book of Revelation is very difficult and it's often ungrammatical. It's puzzled scholars for centuries. And in recent studies, they begin to realize that the reason it's strange is it's been translated from Hebrew. The original thought patterns of John were in Hebrew. So we need to be sensitive to this. Now, the blasphemy of they, those who say they are Jews and are not, that is, their heart isn't there, is usually applied by commentators, and I believe validly, to the Judaizers, those that tried to bring Christians back under the law. That's what the book of Galatians deals with very aggressively. This legalism. The leaven of Galatians. It was nailed here in Acts 15. It's also Galatians, most of the book, chapters 2 and 3, hammer away at this. And uh, Peter even was rebuked by Paul on this issue. And Paul mentions this in Galatians 2 and the early part of chapter 3. Peter agrees with Paul that Peter was wrong in his second epistle, chapters 3, verses 15 and 16. It's interesting as you study the book of Luke and the book of Acts, you discover 
a couple of interesting things. An emphasis that the insurrections, the uprising, are always Jewish instigated. Do you also notice that in Luke, as well as Acts, centurions are always the good guys? And this causes uh, some scholars to suspect that Luke, volume 1 and 2, the Gospel of Luke and, and the book of Acts is volume 2 of Luke, if you will, may well have been the trial documents that were required by law to precede an appeal to Rome. Paul appealed to Rome. Roman law required that all the facts surrounding his uh, situation had to precede his arrival to Rome. And uh, some suspect that the book of Luke and Acts together served that purpose. And that's an interesting view. The early persecution you see in the book of Acts is always by the Jews. In Antioch, in Acts 13, in Iconium, Acts 14, and Lystra also in 14, and Thessalonica in Acts 17. Always it's the Jewish leadership of the cities that's stirring up the trouble. And that's of interest to the Romans, of course, because all they wanted was peace and lack of insurrections. And I mentioned that uh, Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, was burned alive on Shabbat by the Jewish leadership of Smyrna, and uh, so forth. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer, verse 10. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. In the Roman Empire, they came back from the Parthian Wars, bringing back diseases that devastated much of the city of Rome. They also had a major flood on the Tiber that put many of the grain storehouses underwater, which caused famine and more pestilences. So it was a tough time, and they needed a scapegoat. And the Christians were a convenient scapegoat. The people felt that these catastrophes were brought up on them by the Christians introducing this false god of theirs. And so it was a very convenient scapegoat. And if you study the succession of the Caesars, you discover that the Caesars that persecuted the Christians were not necessarily consecutive. There were several Caesars that didn't. But if you look at the list, there were guess how many? Ten. Oh, I sucked you into that, didn't I? He said, you're going to have persecution ten days, ten periods. And it's interesting. Nero beheaded Paul and crucified Peter upside down. And Nero, of course, is the one that burned Rome and blamed it on the Christians to set this all off. Domitian, later on, uh, it was in his reign that John was exiled. And uh, Trajan, it was in his reign that Ignatius was burned at the stake. Marcus Aurelius, that's when Polycarp was martyred, maybe a little before then. Uh, Septimus uh, Severus, he killed Arrhenius. Maximinius, he killed Ursula and Hippolytus. Decius, Valerian, Aurelian, and Diocletian. And Diocletian was the worst of all. He was the tenth of the line, and he also uh, uh, reigned from 303 to 313. He reigned ten years, but that was the most vicious of all. In Fox's Book of Martyrs, the estimate is there were five million that died for Christ during this period of time. And yet that's in a sense the least of it because it's going to get worse in subsequent periods that we'll see. But certainly that was a very, very grim period of the birth of the church. It's interesting that also in the period of Smyrna, I'm just going to bring this out later, but we discover three major heresies emerging here. Legalism, that's the denial of Christ's completed work. All of us get exposed to some form of legalism. We invent it ourselves. We can't get across in our minds the idea that Jesus did it all. We want to add to it. That's blasphemy. Legalism is a heresy. And there are all kinds of legalism. 
Legal denial of Christ's completed work on the cross. Gnosticism rose up in these days. That's the denial of Christ's humanity. And the third one was Caesar worship, the denial of the Christ's lordship. These three major heresies also emerge here in Smyrna. They apparently were controlled in the time of Ephesus. But in this period of time, with all the persecutions, these things start emerging. But now it's interesting, Smyrna is one of the letters where we first take advantage of our understanding of the architecture. Because following the commendation should be criticism. In all the, virtually all the letters, here's the good news, there's the bad news. In Smyrna, the Lord has no word of criticism. He has no, he has no word of complaint. They were satisfying his heart. And you put in your note 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, but we'll move on. We move right into the exhortation. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. It's interesting, there's not a single promise in this letter that they would escape their suffering. He's just telling them they had to endure it. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Now, we have crowns, of course, in the Scripture. There's at least, there's probably more, but there's at least uh, five classic ones. The crown of life that's mentioned here and also in James chapter 1, verse 12. And those are the crown of life for those who have suffered for his sake. The crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4, 8, for those who love his appearing. The crown of glory in 1 Peter 5, 4, for those who fed the lambs and the sheep, the flock. The crown incorruptible in 1 Corinthians 9, 25, for those who press on steadfastly. And a crown of rejoicing, 1 Thessalonians 2.19, for those who win souls. These are five classic crowns. They may be different labels for the same crown, or there may be more than five. I said, you know, five is the number of grace, so that's a reasonable number. Some might say there's seven. I won't press that. But these are five crowns you explicitly find enumerated in the Scripture. And this, his, his commitment of a crown to them is significant. Now, it's kind of interesting because in Smyrna, they also spoke of the crown of Smyrna. It was on their coins and so forth. And so the idea of him speaking of a crown could be, a, in a sense, a double entendre. But in, in, in Smyrna, we had uh, Sibylle, the Greek Rhea, if you will, the mother of Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades. The, the crown of Smyrna was always seen as a crown of battlements, of like a crenellations like you see on a fort. And that's the crown of Smyrna. The reason I mention this, there's a very puzzling passage in Daniel chapter 11, uh, verse 38, where it speaks of the Antichrist dealing with the god of fortresses. If you actually look at the text, it's the goddess of fortresses. And it may end, again be a linkage to uh, some of these uh, ancient beliefs. But that's quite conjectural. I mentioned just in passing for those of you that, that uh, want to you know, chase off in those directions. But the key points here is that no one, no one, there was no promise that they, anyone would escape their suffering. It's, the, it's one of two letters that has no condemnation. No condemnation, no criticism. And by the way, the other letter, of course, is Philadelphia. The two letters you want to be sensitive to is Smyrna and Philadelphia. Neither of those letters had a criticism, and those are the only two cities that have endured to the present time. Kind of interesting. Then we have the, this peculiar structural phrase, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. In the first three letters, the promise to the overcomer follows that little special phrase. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. And again, even the promise to the overcomer is in terms of death. He's speaking to them as if he knew they were going to die for him. 
and that they should have heart. They will not be hurt of the second death. And the second death we'll study more carefully when we get to Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Some theologians structure it like we have two deaths. You have the first death which separates the soul from the body, and the second death which separates the soul and the spirit. And uh, for the believer in Christ, those are reversed. Because our second death's already been taken care of on a cross. They like to express it that way. But in the epistle of Jude, he speaks of twice dead, people who are twice dead. And of course, the thought in either case is that the death that the Christian endures, the physical death, is but an entry to being with him. And uh, uh, he, he's holding that promise, that commitment up before them as they endure physical death on behalf of their testimony for Jesus Christ in this period of time, in the time of Smyrna. If you want more background on that, I encourage you to study carefully 1 Corinthians 15 as a whole background on the resurrection. And if you want some of our background on that, we have a briefing package called uh, From Here to Eternity, which deals with uh, the two key subjects, the resurrection of the body and also the rapture in a fairly intensive study. But in the interest of time, let's just keep moving to the next letter. Letter to the church at Pergamos, the city of the serpent. Ooh, that gets their attention. Now, some of your Bibles may have it Pergamum. Pergamos is the feminine form. Pergamum is the neuter form of the name. Both are okay. Uh, some scholars prefer the neuter rather than the feminine, but we'll leave it with Pergamos for lots of reasons. It's about 70 miles north of Smyrna. Smyrna was a great commercial center. Ephesus was the great political center. Pergamos is the great religious center. Its early history is obscure. There was evidence that it was occupied in the Stone and Bronze Age, but prior to Alexander the Great, uh, it was little more than a castle on top of a hill. And I won't go through the whole lengthy history, other than after the days of Alexander, they were very shrewdly allied themselves with Rome and therefore became very wealthy and prosperous. And uh, for two centuries, it became the official capital of the Roman province of Asia. But it lacked proximity to the major trade route, so it ultimately yields its economic advantage to, to its rival, Ephesus. And uh, it's about 18 miles from the sea and, and uh, no harbor and all that sort of thing. Zeus is said to have been born there, and there was a gigantic altar to Zeus that stood on a foundation 125 feet by 115 feet, over 50 feet high. And uh, some people feel that, because Jesus is going to make reference in the letter to Pergamos that, of Satan's throne. And some people associate the altar of Zeus as being one of those. I have a little different view. doesn't mean it's correct, but I'll mention that in passing. There's another element to the world at that time you should be sensitive to, and that's called an Escalapium, after the god Escalapius, the god of healing. And uh, health institutions, uh, before the scientific practice that was uh, begun by Hippocrates, uh, prospered for about 800 years. They functioned mostly by what you would call today psychiatry and suggestion. Sleep was induced and priests used their own methods, drugs and other methods, to cause the patients to dream. And then they would interpret the dreams. They involved bathing, whispered um, consultations, music plays, other techniques were employed as therapeutic aids. It's all very... Uh, obviously very subjective, but that was their concept of an Escalapium or what uh, was analogous in those days to what you and I would consider a hospital. Now, Escalapius, long before the New Testament days, had been recognized as a god, the son of Apollo and the virgin Cornoy. Escalapius Soter was called Escalapius the Savior, which, of course, bothered Christians in the New Testament period. It was a claim that he had the power to avert death. 
And he was originally represented by the Anatolians as a serpent, and the Greeks later depicted him as holding uh, Hermes' staff, the caduceus, which has a two-headed snake. Now, I'm very intrigued with this because most of the commentators miss the point that this idea of Escalapius comes to that part of the Mediterranean from Alexandria, and from Alexandria it's preceded, actually, by Numbers 21. You may recall that there was a plague of serpents, and uh, God told Moses to put a brass serpent on a pole on top of a hill, and anyone that looked at the pole would be healed. And that's a very weird procedure, in a sense. If God wants to heal him, heal him. No, God had it set up that way for a particular reason. What reason? You don't find that out until you get to John chapter 3, where Jesus interprets it for you. Because as Moses raised a serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be raised up. And so you begin to realize that in Numbers 21, God was already laying the groundwork, if you will, uh, for the cross. So the, the idea, what a strange symbol for Jesus Christ, a brass serpent. Serpent is a symbol of sin. Brass is a symbol of judgment, because brass was the metal that could sustain fire. So brass was Levitically thinking... Uh, meant fire. So you have the brass serpent is sin judged. In the second Corinthians, Paul tells us that Jesus was made sin for us. It's all embodied by an uh, exemplar that God introduces in Numbers 21 in the Torah. And yet, of course, gets fulfilled, as Jesus announces in John 3, gets fulfilled on the cross. Now, it's interesting, that concept, though, of the brass serpent, some many hundreds, I think it's not like 800 years later, I think it's Hezekiah has a problem because that brass serpent is still around and people are worshiping it. So he destroys it. Calls it Nehushtan and all that. And that's in, uh, that is in 2 Kings 18, verse 4, for those who want to track that down. But it intrigues me. I think the root idea to the serpent being associated with healing is the Greek interpretation of the Torah experience. But I'm always amused by the fact that if you watch on cars, you know, you drive a car and you see a symbol of a doctor... It's not one snake, it's two. The one snake is Escalapius. The two snakes is actually the, the caduceus, is the symbol of Hermes. Hermes is the god of commerce. <laughs> so every time I see a doctor without his license plate, I can't help but smile. <laughs> of course, Pergamus, by the way, also, was a, was not, while it was not a seat of imperial authority, it became the center of Caesar worship. And uh, Augustus inaugurated emperor worship in order to give the, you know, this common bond idea. And the first temple of this cult was erected in Pergamus in 27 B.C. So Escalapius is considered identical to Pathion or uh, Nimrod, who founded the original Babylonian religion, eventually developing in the worship of his widow Semiramis and his posthumous son, the Ashtoreth or Tammuz of Phoenicia, the Isis and Horus of Egypt, the Aphrodite and Eros of Greece, or the Venus and Cupid of Rome, etc., we're going to talk more about this next time, so I won't get into all this here. Except you need to understand that all those ideas had their beginning in Babylon. And when the Persians conquered Babylon, that priest cult migrated to Pergamos, and it became the center of those pagan ideas. And when, uh, and in fact, it was at Pergamos that the king called himself Pontifus Maximus, the high priest of that pagan system. And uh, ultimately, that when Rome rises to power... The priests go where the power is, follow the money, right? So the priests move from Pergamos to Rome. And all those ideas that we associate with pagan Rome came to Rome from Pergamos, which in turn came from Babylon. And we'll talk more about that next time I want to, when we talk about uh, the church at Thyatira. Now it's interesting that we go through the Roman Caesars 
after Diocletian and all that, you get to Constantine. Constantine in 312 set out to defeat the forces of Maxentius and his rival for supreme power in the empire. His father had prospered when he prayed to the God of the Christians. So Constantine, in his extremity, uh, resorted to the same action. And it's said that on the next day, he saw shining in the sky a cross with an inscription above it, in hoc singo vences, that is, in this sign thou shalt conquer. He defeated Maxentius at the Milvan Bridge and immediately declared his conversion to Christianity. He assumed headship of the church, repealed the persecution acts of Diocletian, and advanced Christians to high office. He didn't make Christian the state religion. A successive emperor does that. What he does do is become a Christian himself, and he makes it politic to become a Christian. You get the difference. Heathenism was thus Christianized. Pagan temples became Christian churches. Heathen festivals were converted to Christian ones. Pagan priests slipped into office as Christian priests. Change was mostly through nomenclature. Well, let's jump into Pergamus. Unto the angel and church at Pergamus write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with the two edges. So he's talking about the word of God. Pergamus comes from two roots. Per, mixed or objectionable. Pervert, perturbation. The word per can mean mixed or objectionable. Gamus, marriage, bigamy, monogamy, polygamy. We still have that root, don't we? What is pergamy? Mixed marriage, objectionable marriage. And this is the era in which the church shifts from being persecuted to marrying the world's paganism. And it's interesting that Jesus also emphasized the sword, which has two edges. The Romans had a concept of gladii. They divided all their administrators in two levels, those that had the right of the sword and those that didn't. If you had the right of the sword, you had the power over life or death. You could order someone executed. If you didn't, you couldn't. That was the, a, a very major distinction. The right of the sword, they called it. Verse 13, I know thy works. There is in that phrase, we're going to have the commendation. Now, we're going to have a lot of negative things to say about Pergamos, but let's right up front recognize God is commending them. Jesus Christ is commending them. He says, I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast to my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where Antipas was my faithful witness or martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Well, to really develop this, of course, we need to develop this whole idea of the, the uh, Babylonian religion. And in the interest of time, we'll take some of that up next time in more detail. The Babylonian religious system started with Nimrod in Genesis 10 and 11, which became Phaeton or Aesculapius, if you will. And again, the serpent was a symbol of Aesculapius, etc. He marries Semiramis and uh, has a supernaturally, posthumously born son by the name of Tammuz. And um, he was associated with the sun god. He's said to die at the winter solstice. And he was celebrated as being resurrected the next day. The way they did that was they took a log. The Chaldean word for infant was Yule. They took a Yule log in the fireplace, burned it, and then the next morning put a trim tree in its place in the house. And that's the way they celebrated the apparent birth of the rebirth of the sun god. Does that sound familiar to you? You see, Christmas was adaptation of the ancient Babylonian rites of the worship of Tammuz. And uh, 
the mistletoe, the fertility symbol of the mistletoe. All the, it's, a, it's shocking to discover how many of our classic traditions, which of course go back typically to England, but in turn go back to ultimately to Babylon. And of course, as I indicated, this whole system migrates to Pergamos, then to Rome, and becomes the background to uh, the paganism of the Christian church. It's in this period of time that we have all kinds of doctrines emerge in the church. The concept of a priest being celibate, the concept of the crucifix, the purgatory, the infallibility of the popes, the mariolatry, the eulatry, the missile, these all go back to... We're going to talk much more about these, especially when we get to Revelation 17. Jesus makes reference to Antipas, and it turns out most commentators throw up their hands here. I understand that Tertullian has a legend that he's said to be a dentist, of all things, and a physician accused of disloyalty to Caesar, he was condemned to death by being shut up inside of a brass or copper bull, which was then heated red hot. He was burned, cooked alive. But this idea of Satan's seat being in Pergamos, if you understand the Babylonian thread, and we'll talk more about that, it seems quite logical. But it's interesting to remember something else very strange here. Satan is not omnipresent. You know, there's two mistakes you make with Satan. One is to assume he doesn't exist. I think most of you are more sophisticated than that. Um, somebody has quipped that if you don't believe in Satan, just try opposing him for a while. The other mistake we make is to, to imagine him being God. He's not omnipresent. He can be at one place at a time. He has powerful forces, so I don't, I'm not saying this to demean it at all. But it's interesting to recognize that he's not omnipresent. Demons themselves, strangely enough, seem to be territorial, assigned to certain areas. We find that exemplified in Daniel chapter 10. Study Daniel 10 carefully. And it gives you an example of that. Also, when we discover who Gog is by reading the Septuagint of Amos 7, 1, uh, and get into all that, we again see this indication that demons somehow are territorial. And that's one reason that we literally take the boundaries of this meeting place and uh, had exorcism um, uh, procedures because we do not know the history of this ground. And um, I encourage you to think about that with your homes just to uh, hold up before the throne of God its perimeter and uh, plead the blood of Jesus Christ over that property that uh, uh, we could go through uh, whatever the Spirit leads you to do. But let's move on. Now, verse 14 starts the criticism of Pergamos. Jesus says, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. Now here's one of those cases where you really can't understand the idiom that Jesus is using unless you know your Old Testament, and you know the history of this strange character by the name of Balaam, Numbers 22, 23, 24, in that area. I encourage you to read it tonight. But uh, you'll find in the scripture three different problems with Balaam. Here we have the doctrine of Balaam, and it is associated with spiritual unchastity, marriage to the world. Second Peter 2.15 speaks of the way of Balaam, meaning he was a prophet that sold his gift for hire. And then the error of Balaam in Jude 11. Now you need to understand, Balaam was an interesting character, but he was hired by Israel's enemies to curse Israel. And God warned him not to go, but he went anyway. Big mistake. And uh, Balak, the enemy of, of Israel, hired him to curse Israel. And after seven offerings and so forth, he blessed Israel. And they did this on a number of different hills, and each time Balaam was hired to curse Israel, but instead he blesses Israel. 
And uh, that makes his client very upset. And uh, what Balaam then does, he can't curse the people because God's put his words in his mouth, he blesses them. But what he did do, he used his knowledge to tell Balak how to compromise Israel. He says, have your best-looking young gals be on the borders and end up drawing the Israelites into fornication. And that will cause God to judge the nation Israel. And uh, uh, the seduction worked. In Numbers 25, we have all of that. I'm in the interest of time not going into it. Numbers 31, 16 is a key verse that you'll want to jot down if you're going to get into this. But in the interest of finishing on time, we'll just keep moving here. What Balaam had not counted on is God's grace. See, because God didn't judge them quite the way he thought they would. So the doctrine of Balaam is that he took the way of Cain in effect. He lived righteously afterward, but he perished miserably with the enemies of God at last. You'll find in Joshua 13, verse 22, the final end of this strange character by the name of Balaam. Of course, the error for Balaam for hire, the sacrificing of eternal riches for temporal gain, his lust for pleasures of sin for a season. Um, is, you know, there are many examples of that in the Scripture. And uh, this concept of fornication, it was literal in Balaam's case, but you also know in 1 Corinthians 10 and elsewhere, Paul uses that term of spiritual fornication, uh, the idea of partaking in idol activities, activities involving idols. And so uh, that's what uh, uh, Jesus is drawing by analogy. Speaking of Balaam, the doctrine of Balaam, he's saying, you have those among you, Pergamos, that hold of these doctrines. You know, what you're getting Christians to compromise with the various idols, meats offered to idols, all these things that Paul talks about in his Corinthian letters as an example. Verse 15, they have another problem. Many scholars think they're both the same. I think it's a totally different problem. But it's also, he says, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now we encountered this in the first letter, letter to Ephesus. Because they were commended that they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. But by the time you get to Pergamos, these deeds are now doctrine. And most scholars recognize that the Nicolaitans may be an untranslated word, nekeo from the Greek, which means uh, to rule over, and laity, or the, la- the laos, which means people, laetans, like the laity. It's the concept of the clergy and the laity, the concept of the clergy ruled over the laity. That started a special uniform, special perks, a whole concept of the priesthood being above the average believer was introduced. And that's something Jesus says in the first letter to Ephesus that he hates. It has now become doctrines, and the Pergamos church is being scolded because they've allowed that to become a doctrine. And Jesus' rebuttal to that is what he did that night, where is it, John 13, where he washed their feet. That was his concept of ministry. It's interesting that Peter himself, in his first letter, chapter 5, verse 3, makes mention of this, that they should not lord over their flock. And it's how interesting it is that Peter himself seems, I, I sometimes suspect may have had a premonition, that his own name would be used in, in centuries later to endorse these practices. We're going to later on talk about the seven parables of Matthew 13. I'll make that a special element. But those of you that are following the chart, I want you to notice that in the first church, Ephesus, the seed was, was planted. In the second letter, in the Smyrna, is when the first heresies, the legalism, the Gnosticism, the worship of Caesar, is introduced. The tares and the wheat, if you will. The third letter to Pergamos seems to correspond to the third parable 
Where Jesus says that there's a, the, the kingdom of God is like a, a mustard seed which grows into a tree, that the birds of the air come and lodge in its branches. Many people misunderstand that parable. To understand that parable, you need to first of all understand that mustard seeds, in, despite what your Bible dictionary may tell you, in Israel grows to about three feet high. That yellow stuff you see in all the pictures is mustard. And it's their bushes. Now, no self-respecting bird lives in a bush. The birds in the parables in the earlier part were Satan's ministers to snatch away the seed. And what the third parable deals with is that this mustard tree has grown to a monstrosity so bad that even the birds of the first parable can rest in its branches. So it's interesting to see that the seven kingdom parables seem to parallel the seven churches. We'll develop that more carefully later. I'm just, this is just intent as a quick introduction. That should not surprise us. The seven parables were of the church given by Jesus Christ. The seven letters are to seven churches by whom? By Jesus Christ. That should not surprise us. But we'll have some surprises for you when we get into that study more carefully. Let's get down to verse 16. Now we have the exhortation. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent. How do you repent? Make a 180 degree turn, change of mind, all good answers. The way you repent, well, when you repent, remember 1 John 1.9, the Christian's bar of soap. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's his faithfulness we cling to, not ours. Amen is right. Now the sword of my mouth, of course, is an idiom from Hebrews 4.12. It's also an idiom from chapter 1. It's also the sword of Ephesians 6, verse 17. What is the sword of his mouth? The word of God. You betcha. It's interesting that in Ephesians 6, 17, the sword is in the minds of most... Most people realize that Paul was chained to the Roman soldier. The Roman soldier thought he was chained to keep Paul from getting away. Paul saw it the other way around. That was to make sure the Roman soldier got saved. And from the indications from the text... We believe that those, many of those uh, centurions were saved by that being chained to Paul for a while. Try being chained to Paul for a while. <laughs> Most people presume that his idioms there, at least in his mind, he has this Roman soldier next to him, that the sword was the machaira, the short, the famed Roman sword, a short 24-inch two-sided blade that, that uh, Rome used to conquer the world. Most people have never done a study of the Machaira, and, and it has two peculiar characteristics you might find interesting. First of all, it was designed for close quarters. And I ask you, do you use your sword for one-on-one -on -one close quarters? Uh, the second thing about the Machaira, it was almost useless without special training. The Roman soldiers went through, underwent very special training to exploit this short sword. And maybe that's why we're all here tonight, isn't it? To get some special training so we can be more effective at using our swords. And it has been said that we don't need more organizations. We need more atomization. We need more of us. We need to raise Christian conversationalists so one-on-one -on -one at lunch you can evangelize. Not in large groups with sawdust trails. I'm not knocking them. But I think the real work of the Lord is done one-on-one -on -one personally with someone in an intimate session, setting. Anyway, moving on. It's interesting that we always make the mistake when we think the church is the judge of what's right and wrong. In none of these seven letters is the church the judge of anything. 
other than what Jesus Christ declared was right and wrong. In each case, Jesus Christ is, is making the distinctions. And then, of course, now verse 17, we get to this peculiar marker. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. And then we come to the promise to the overcomer. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Well, the hidden manna phrase shouldn't surprise us. From Exodus 16, remember the incident with manna? Remember the manna fell? You couldn't get it for your friend. You had to get it, everyone had to get it for themselves. You couldn't get it for your, for your kids or your mother or your father. Everyone had to get their own. Interesting. Interesting lesson there. In Psalm 78, manna is described strangely as angel's food. So you mystics can run with that a little if you like. And of course, the ultimate example of the bread of life is in John 6, the famous bread of life discourse by Jesus Christ, verses 31 to 58. Jesus makes, does seven miracles in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is just as organized Revelation is, it's just not as obvious. Seven miracles, seven discourses, seven I am statements by Jesus Christ make up the Gospel of John. But one of these, I am the bread of life, in John 6, of course, you can link to this very easily. Now, we also have this peculiar phrase called the white stone. He says that I will give uh, him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written. And you can go through the commentators and find all kinds of speculations about the white stone. Pergamus did worship an Asiatic goddess whose symbol in the temple was a black meteorite, very analogous to what Islam uses from the Kaaba. This meteorite was presented to the King Attalus of Rome as a symbol of friendship on the verge of Hannibal's uh, famed attack in 205 B.C. So some say, gee, Pergamus is represented by a black stone. He's contrasting that, possibly. There's a thing called the Cephas, which was a ballot. If you, in a trial by jury, the jurors would put in a white or a black stone in the box, and the white was acquittal, the black was guilty, and that's a possibility. That idiom is comfortable. But there's also a thing called a tessera, a white stone that was given to the victor at games. But there was a particular kind of tessera, tessera hospitalis, which if you gave this to a close friend, it would ensure that your heirs would be hospitably treated by his heirs. The analogy is if you've read the, the Noble House, the idea of the Chinese coin being broken and, and representing an obligation that would endure to the heirs and assigns, those kinds of ideas. But there's another way to attack this that I challenge you to do. And that's simply to take your concordance, or better yet, your computer concordance if you have one, and talk about stones. Take any word, let's say stone, and go through the scripture. And you'll discover in Isaiah 28:16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. And of course, that's quoted in Ephesians 2:20, or built upon the foundation of apostles and so forth. Jesus Christ himself being the chief corner, what? Stone. 1 Peter 2.4, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. And he goes on in verse 6, uh, Peter, that's 1 Peter uh, 2. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. There again he's quoting that passage in Isaiah. The stone which the builders refused, Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. Quoted in Matthew 21, Jesus saith unto him, Did ye never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same as to become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. Isn't it marvelous in our eyes? And he goes on a few verses later to say, Whosoever shall fall upon this stone shall be broken. 
but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. You want to figure out which one are you? You're going to fall on the stone and be broken? Hope, praise God, let's hope so. And that same thing is quoted in Mark 12 and Luke 20. But And Peter again, interesting how Peter hangs on to the stone. It's his namesake, isn't it? This is the stone which is set at naught. In Acts chapter 4, remember? To you builders that become the headstone of the corner. First Peter again in his epistle, chapter 2. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto him which be disobedient, the stone which the builders have disallowed, the same has become the headstone of the corner, and so forth. He's a stone of stumbling. Isaiah 8.14. He shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling, and for a rock of offense to both houses of Israel, for a, a gin and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And Peter quotes this also. 1 Peter 2.8. A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, even them which stumble at the word, being a disobedient, whereunto they are appointed. Remember Daniel chapter 2? The stone cut without hands that smites the image and ends up ruling the whole world. But there's even a stranger passage in Zechariah 3.9. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Strange phrase, isn't it? Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, and so forth. When you get to Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus is said to have had seven eyes. And again, does he mean you, have, you don't draw this? Seven, he has complete awareness. You see, he can see completely. Seven is a symbolic number. So your concordance can be a powerful tool. It's your most powerful tool in the book of Revelation. You can take any of these phrases and follow them into the Old Testament, and the Scripture itself will reveal what they mean. But he says here he will give him a stone with a new name written. Strange idea, isn't it? Shouldn't be. What happened to Abraham? Right? In Genesis 17.5, he had a new destiny, so he had a new name, Abraham. Put the heh in there, the breathe in it, the spirit. Jacob becomes Israel at Peniel at uh, Genesis 32. And it's interesting if you read Isaiah 62, verse 2. And the nations shall see thy righteousness and all the kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. So just as Abraham and Jacob received new names, it seems that uh, so will the overcomers in, the, in, in Pergamos. Now, one of the things that we're going to get into next time, because next time we'll, uh, we'll address the church at Thyatira, and one of the thing, distinctions we're going to make is the difference between Byzantium and the church at Rome. And one of the things, let me warn you in advance, much of what most of us think we know about the history of the Roman Catholic Church needs to be examined a little more closely from the real uh, reach. The, the, the great cleavage that occurs in the 5th or 6th century between the East and West churches and the subsequent rise of Rome as a factor. But one of the things you're going to want to understand that um, the Roman Empire was founded actually, originally, the city of Rome was 753 B.C., it subdued Italy and so forth. It was under Caesar by 46 B.C. It rises to power and it goes through all... The, it finally gets to its peak in uh, Marcus Aurelius' times, then it declines and falls, and until uh, finally, uh, in uh, 306 or so, Constantine takes over, and, uh, and you know the story of how Constantine uh, becomes the emperor of the Roman Empire. But Constantine, as a Christian, apparently, is so fed up with the paganism of Rome that he moves the headquarters of the world to Byzantium, calling it Constantinople. And for five centuries, the religious world is ruled, not in Latin and Greek, from Byzantium. 
And uh, so you're going to understand there's going to be some important distinctions between Pergamos and Thyatira. And if any of you come from a Catholic background or are a little uncomfortable with that, let me make one other point. If Thyatira does indeed point to the Catholic Church, then Sardis points to the Reformation. And Sardis is one of the two letters in the seven about which no good is spoken. So even though the Catholics have had a real abuse by, from Protestant commentators about Thyatira, uh, you can turn the tables on the Protestant commentators by taking a good hard look at what Sardis is really all about. Because if Thyatira is the Catholic Church, Sardis is the, the Reformation, which did not go far enough. And uh, we'll deal with that as brutally as we deal. We have something in this study to offend everyone. And none will be disappointed. Our time is up. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. There are some of each of the seven churches in each of our churches. There are elements of all seven churches in each of our lives. And that's what we need to pray about. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we come before your throne asking you, Father, to have our ears here what the Spirit has said to the churches. Father, we would ask that you would help us remain separated from the world and its system in whatever shape or packaging it happens to be at the moment. Help us each to yield our lives totally, completely to the one who has the power of life and death. We pray, Father, that you would keep each of us faithful, and discerning. Help us to understand what you would have of each of us in these days. And if indeed, Father, the opportunity presents itself to be faithful even unto death, we pray, Father, in advance that you would give us that strength, that resolve, that focus on him with whom we have to do. For we commit ourselves this night into your hands in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ Amen